God, you are our Father. Jesus is our Savior. The Holy Spirit fills us so that we might be renewed in our thinking and in our feeling and in our behaving as we follow you. So God, as we have worshipped you as Trinity, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we have hopefully focused our mind and softened our hearts before you were ready to receive your word. So speak to us now. Make us the kind of people you want us to be. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a phrase all of you have heard since time you were little ones. It's the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, we've all heard that one. I remember the first time I heard that years ago and thinking to myself, you know what, I'm just not sure that's true. I think that's awfully an unfair phrase to old dogs, if you ask me. And the reason is because I know plenty of old dogs that have had to learn new tricks, and they've done it quite well. Uh, Kim and I, as many of you know, moved here just uh, almost five years ago from Cleveland, Ohio. Before that, we were in Canada for a few years, and we picked up a dog in Canada named Chester. He's now gone. He got old and died. Here's a picture of him. But when we moved to the valley five years ago, we had Chester, and he was getting older. And did I mention he was born in Canada? So he was a a bred dog in Canada, a little Jack Russell Terrier. And when we moved here, I said to the kids and Kim, you know, we got to be careful. There's rattlesnakes and scorpions and cacti here in the desert. we got to watch this guy. So wouldn't you know, three weeks after he got here, one of our relatives was visiting, had Chester out in the desert, let him off the leash. And before you know it, he bound right into a choya cacti. The worst kind. Got it in his snout and his face and then tried to get it off with his paws. 240 bucks it cost me at the vet to get all of those things out of, of his. But you know what was fascinating? He never went near a choya cacti again. I mean, I was stunned. The guy learned, avoid those things. And we've seen that happen a lot. Well, Kim loves dogs, so we have two now. We had three before uh, Chester died. And, you know, we, we adopted one here since we've moved here, and the other dogs adjusted fine to her. That We have a dog door here. We didn't have that in Cleveland, and they've learned to use a dog door. We have different furniture here in some ways, and we now they now know what furniture they can go on and not go on. I'm sure the guy that, that, that coined the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, had a very dumb dog. And he was very frustrated with that dog. I get that. But it's not fair to say that all dogs are that way. And I think many of you could agree. So you're saying, why do you go into that? Well, I find that people who, by the way, are smarter than dogs, tend to be wired similarly. Some of us think that people can't change. Some of us think that people are incapable of growing and adapting new patterns and adopting new values and things like that. I don't believe that, neither do you, or we wouldn't be here in church. God says that we are all capable of changing and growing, no matter how old we are, that we can become the kind of people that he wants us to be. And so if you can latch on to that, that's precisely what we've been doing in this series that we're in on the values of our church. But we've been talking about the things that we hold dear as the body of Christ here at Scottsdale Bible Church, the things that have taken us over the last 50 years to be the kind of church that we are. So we've talked about things like uh, transformational Bible teaching, the fact that we teach the Bible unashamedly because we believe it has the power to transform lives. We've talked about engaging worship, the fact that we engage God in worship because we believe by so doing we submit to him and prepare ourselves for the week. 
We've talked about authentic community, how getting honest with each other and confessing our shortcomings and listening and loving and learning together, but we can grow closer to God. And then last week, we talked about service-based outreach. Wasn't that a week where we learned that when we mix service and evangelism, it's catalytic in the hands of God as he uses us. These are the things that have carried us over the years. They're the values that have made us us. And as we noted early on in this series, they've worked for us. And so this year, if you don't hear anything else, what you need to know is that our elders and our staff, and now hopefully all of us, are stacking hands on these things, saying they've taken us for 50 years. They're going to take us for the next 50, should the Lord tarry. And yet, just like an old dog, who can learn new tricks, we're also realizing this year that as we look to expand our impact, nothing new, but just expand the impact we have here in the valley and across the world, there are some further things we need to embrace, however, building upon that which we already do, certain other values that we need to ramp up on if we're going to get more mileage as a church out of the things that we've already done. Or put another way, If we're going to attempt to build upon the values that have gotten us here, the Bible, worship, community, service, and outreach, and build upon them in such a way that we expand our impact, then there's at least one other value, and I'm sure more, that will be critical to our expansion. And it's a value that's going to involve each and every one of us in some way or another. And it's the value of generosity, the value of generosity. An older saint came up to me after this last service and said, you know, as soon as you got about six minutes into the sermon, I was like, I don't think I like where he's going with this. He said, then I got to the end of the sermon and I said, I'm all in. So if that's your experience right now, just hang with me. I think you're going to like what you have to hear about how God can use our open-handedness, how he can use our big-heartedness when it comes to our time, talents, and treasures when we get generous with those around us, with all of who we are. It's called generosity. It's a very simple thing when you think about it, but it's a profound thing in the hands of God when a church gets serious about it. And probably the most cool thing about generosity is that, get this, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, if you've come to him through faith in him for salvation, then the Bible says that he has now written or encoded your soul with generosity. He has. He has now hardwired you in your redemption in Christ to be the kind of person that is generous. It's true. Or to reduce it to its most simple form, yet so very encouraging and hope-filled, and as our main point today, God saved you in order for you to be generous. In great part, that's true. God saved you, and the day that he saved you, whenever you came to Christ, whether you know the exact moment of time or not, God had in mind that he was creating a new creation in Christ who would be other-centered, selfless, focused on using your resources, your time, talents, and treasures from this point forward to benefit God and glorify his his name as you pour into others generously around you. 
If you brought a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you did, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And as you're turning there, and if you don't have a Bible, I'll put it up here on the screen, the context here is that the Apostle Paul is just finishing his three-year stint in Ephesus, which is a town there in the Middle East. And he had led many people to Christ. He had set up the church. He had established elders. He had been teaching and preaching and living among them for almost three years. And toward the end of chapter 20 here, Paul is now on the shores of Ephesus there, and he's giving some final words of encouragement and warning to this church, and particularly to their elders. So don't miss this. These are the parting and final words from Paul to the church in Ephesus, knowing that he will most likely never see them again until heaven, arguably then the most important words that he would say to them. And so notice how he wraps up these most important words. So these are the final words of his final words in verses 32 to 36 of Acts chapter 20. This is fascinating. He says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Hang on to that phrase, word of his grace. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know how... These hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Now, what I need you to see more than anything else in this text here, this is really not complicated, is something that up until a few months ago, I never saw in this text. I was reading some stuff by Tim Keller, who's pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, and he pointed out something in this text that I had never seen. And what he pointed out here is that there is an obvious link between our salvation, the word of his grace, and the call by Jesus and affirmed by Paul to give and be generous. Very fascinating. And so Paul says there in verse 32 that he commends them to the word of his grace. The word of his grace. Now, now, what do you think that means? It's actually an unusual phrase, though it sounds very biblical. Paul is combining there the Greek word logos, word, and charis, grace, that rarely ever appear in the same verse together. So it's a very unique phrase, the word of his grace in the New Testament. And yet what most Bible experts point out is that this is most likely a unique and poetic way to communicate our salvation in Jesus Christ. Think about it. God's word, his truth and revelation that has come into our lives via his grace, the grace that now saves us as well as causes us to grow in Christ. So the word of his grace is referring to our salvation that we have in Christ. And to be sure that we're interpreting this rightly, just a few verses before this, in verse 24, Paul says this. He says, The ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So there's that word grace again, but this time linked to the word gospel, which we all know means the good news. It's our salvation. Now, so Paul is commending the Ephesian elders here to the word of his grace, the gospel to the saved them, and given them eternal life. And what's most fascinating then is that at this point, you would expect him to say what you and I would say, say today. 
And that is he would say something like, well, now that you're saved, you ought to pray and go to church and engage in Bible study and serve in soup kitchens and listen to Christian radio. But it's interesting, he doesn't say any of that. No, he goes on to talk about generosity. And right on the coattails of mentioning our salvation, he links it to generosity. He talks about how he used his time, his talents and treasures to help those in need and pour into others, all the while, while avoiding covetousness and greed. And then he wraps up by quoting Jesus. Interesting, a quote that you won't find in any of the four Gospels. So most Bible experts say that this came down through oral tradition that existed at that time. He quotes Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Don't miss this, folks. It's a very fascinating link that, again, I got a seminary degree. I've been a Christian 30 years. I had not seen this before. There's a clear link between our salvation, the word of God's grace, and the call to give and be generous. Of all the things that Paul could have linked to our salvation, he links generosity. And it's not saying that generosity saves you. I think we all get that. He's simply saying that flowing out of our salvation is this hardwiring now in our spirituality to be generous. And he's speaking this to a church. Don't miss that. To the Ephesian elders saying, as a church, you guys now have the opportunity to be generous in order to have more kingdom impact as God uses you. And the question that I need you and I to wrestle with right now is why? I mean, why is it of all the things that God could have linked to our salvation, he links generosity? What is he thinking in doing this? What is it about generosity that would cause God to say in part that he has saved us in order to be generous? Two things I want to suggest to you in our time remaining this morning. Two things that are right here in the text. I'm just going to follow the flow of the text that the Bible tells us here about the power and potency of generosity once it infects a human heart and is thrown upon a hurting world that that can happen through God's generous people. And the first thing is, is that generosity heals a hurting world. It's true. That generosity heals a hurting world. And so look at how Paul says this in verses 34 to 35 of Acts 20. He says, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessity and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here's one of the things that I did this week. Whenever I'm putting together a message like this, as you guys know, that's topical in nature and kind of focuses on one idea, I want to make sure we define that idea, right? So I looked up the word generosity in Webster's Dictionary. And it defined generosity as this. It's defined as being excessive with something. Isn't that interesting? Being excessive with something. And in the context here, then, it would be being excessive to others with your time, talents, and treasures. And so with this understanding, this idea of being excessive with, now match that up against the text here and watch what happens. Paul says these hands, these hands, meaning his time and talents, were not just used to provide for his own necessities, but also for others, an idea of being excessive with them. But not stopping there, he further notes that these hands were working hard in order to what? Help the weak. Again, it's language of excess. 
And then he quotes Jesus, this saying in oral tradition at that time, and he says, it's more blessed, language of excess, to give than to receive. And so Paul is clearly letting us know that he's talking about generosity this uh, here, this idea of being excessive, being overwhelming to others with your time, your talents, and your treasures. And the result being that if you do that, it's going to help those in need. And to be sure that we get this, he then does something in verse 35 in quoting Jesus that has very rich overtones into the Old Testament. He uses that word that we've all heard before, bless. He quotes Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, wrestle with this a minute with me, church. When he says that it is more blessed to give than to receive, who is the one that gets blessed there? In other words, is it the person that's giving or the person that's receiving, do you think, that gets the blessing? What's the answer to that? Giver, some of you say. Okay, any of you guys say receiver here? Uh, You guys awake with me here? Anybody say receiver here? How many of you would say both get a blessing? Okay, good. All right, right, let's wrestle with this for a second here. The, the, The obvious answer that most of you said is both. And by the way, that's right. I think when you look at all of the Bible, it says that when we are generous, there's a blessing to the person being generous as well as a blessing to obviously to the person that's getting blessed. Interestingly, however, the context here, and this will shock some of you, actually favors the one on the receiving end when Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the reason we know that is because Paul had just said that his being generous helped the weak and would and would use these hands to benefit and bless others. And this would make sense, that when you look at the whole of the Bible, specifically the way the Old Testament uses this word bless, that whenever God blessed his people, or whenever his people would bless others, there would flow peace and harmony. Isn't that interesting? That in the Bible... When there's a blessing, either from God or from his people, there was always some sort of peace. Many of you know from your study of the Old Testament, number six called the Shema. It's one of the greatest blessings in all of the Old Testament. Look up here on the screen and, and you'll see what I mean. Look at what the Shema says. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you Isn't that interesting? The bookends of the Shema are blessing and then peace. And you guys know the Hebrew word here, shalom. And so the idea is, is that when you look at all the ideas of, or the occurrences of blessing in the Bible, you'll see this pattern that blessing produces peace or shalom. And it happens on all levels, physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, even societally. As Israel experienced that when God blessed them, there was peace or shalom. So go back to Acts 20, and let's put this all together. Flowing from his newly encoded spiritual DNA as one who is now saved eternally and has the Holy Spirit in him, Paul says he lived a generous life. He worked hard. He helped the weak. He gave more than he received. And as a result of this, there was blessing, blessing that brought peace, shalom. On multiple levels. Truly, folks, see, generosity heals a hurting world. 
when you and I use our blessings in all forms, time, talents, and treasures, with open hands and big hearts, blessings flow. People are helped, and peace that we all want begins to be a reality. And I sat in my home office this week, and I was just flooded as I meditated on this with how many times I've had the wonderful opportunity to see this happen through God's people. This this is so verifiable, it's not funny. That when God's people get generous, when they get releasing of the resources that God has blessed them with, peace, shalom, blessing happens all over the place. As many of you know, I spent nine years in Detroit as as a pastor from 1990 to 1999, almost all the 90s. I was an associate pastor in a very uh, wonderful, growing church. When I first got to this church, there was just three of us as pastors. It was a smaller church, and we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, We were high on zeal, all seminary educated, but really had no idea how to run a church. And so we were shooting from the hip and following God around every corner. And God blessed our church, and we grew. And at one point, uh, we realized this generosity thing as we were growing as a church and realized that we needed to add more ministries and more missionaries and more things to our facility. And so we began challenging our people on this value of generosity. Our church was in the last city block of Detroit, so the needs were great. But we were nudging up against a suburb called Gross Point. And if any of you know the Michigan area, you know that Gross Point would be very similar to a... Scottsdale type of environment. It definitely had been blessed uh, on a monetary level. And so we started talking to our people about generosity, again, of themselves and their talents, their time, as well as their treasures. I'll never forget one Christmas. It was probably around the mid-1990s, and I was uh, the lead, one of the lead pastors at the church there, really running the church for the senior pastor who was doing preaching and teaching. And a guy who, who had been obviously blessed and, and had a great company and there in Detroit and lived in Gross Point, came into my office and he put a check for $50,000 made out to the church in front of me. Now, 50000 bucks for a church at that time of maybe eight, 900 people in the mid-1990s was an incredible amount of money. We didn't see that very often. And he put a check for $50,000 in front of me and he said, this is not what you think. It's made out to the church, but I have a list here of people that I want this money to go to. These are people in our church that I know are hurting, single moms, families that have hit rough times, And I parsed out how much I want to go to each individual family. And it was a sizable amount to probably five or six different families or people in our church. And he said, and because it's year end, I'd like a tax write-off for this. (laughs) Now, I got to fill you all in on something. Uh, Finance 101 from an IRS standpoint within a church or nonprofit organization means that you cannot give to a church and then tell them exactly the people you want it to go to. If that was the case, then we all be giving each other money, taking a tax write-off for it, and you'd be blessing family members and everybody else, and it would just be a free-for. You can't do that. It's a fine line. You can give money to a church, and the board can decide, as we do every month with our, our benevolent fund, you know, how to dole that out. But there's a fine line between the board deciding that and you as an individual saying, I want this to go there, and I want a tax write-off. And I knew that. I mean, I was taught that one from day one. So it was kind of an awkward moment. And I looked at this gentleman, and I said, well, that's a very generous gift. And I said, but I, I can't promise you a tax write-off for this. I said, I, I can't at all. I said, I, I, I just, you can't do it that way. I said, but here's the good news. And I was testing him here. I said, you can still give the money, though. And I can still give it to all these people. 
and you still can bless all of these people, but I just can't promise you that you're going to get a tax write-off for this. That's exactly what it was like after I said that to him. I mean, he didn't say a word. I could see the gears turning in his head. This guy was, I mean, he was a good Christ follower, but he was such a businessman. And I could tell he was thinking at that moment, stink. This is not working out like I thought it would. It was December. So many business guys get this. He's going, ah. And he looked at me and he made the right choice. He said, take it, take it. And he said, and give it to the people I wanted to give to. And he left my office. It was one of the most joyous things I ever got to do in my young pastoral career. I, I, I well up every time I think about it. Trudging, and my guys remember snow, trudging out there in the snow in December in Detroit, knocking on a single mom's house, giving her a check for 5,000 bucks right before Christmas. I mean, they just wept on the porch there. You can see the kids just going, man, we're going to have a I mean, I was just like, wow. Never experienced something like that. I wasn't raised in a home like that all my life. And it marked me forever. And it marked me forever, too. The guy that said, tax write-off, okay. I don't know. It's not what it's about. It's about generosity. It's about blessings that turn into shalom. And, and I tell you, I get to see this happen all the time in the church. I wish you guys could see what I see. This week, we had a team in Tanzania. As you guys know, we support two villages over there. And our team in Tanzania sent me a note, and they said, you know, we're continuing to provide water, plant gardens, building more schools. Blessings have become shalom for an entire village, two of them, in Tanzania. It's what happens here when we run events like we did last month, where we bring in a comedian, and we share the gospel with lots of lost people in Scottsdale. And we provide a building like this and an event budget where God turns that blessing into shalom as lost people get saved. It's what happens every month when we use our elders' fund for everything from helping those who have hit on hard times to blessing neighborhood ministries down in the city. Blessings turn into shalom for those who have needs. And make no mistake, it happens in a big picture way all the time in a church like this and in many churches around our nation where you design a counseling center or a women's ministry or a men's ministry or a student teen ministry that counsels with godly wisdom and teaches with biblical accuracy and connects people in life-changing community and gets them serving from a sense of their gifts and passions. And before you know it, blessings become shalom, all stemming from generous hearts as God's people follow God. You get the picture. I mean, it hit me this week. It's such a simple thing. You and I were taught to be generous from the age of two. But we were told to share our toys when we were little ones. And God says when you grow up, continue that pattern. It's just that now the toys are bigger. It's just that now the stakes are higher. You're not in a playroom anymore. You're in the world. And yet in the hands of God, working through the ignited heart of a generous giver, a hurting world begins to get healed physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. And it can become a driving value in the church that literally changes the composition of a human heart and the trajectory of a human life. And yet it doesn't stop there. Up to this point, what we've talked about mainly is what generosity does for others and what generosity does in building God's church. But notice with me that the text also talks about a second thing that generosity does, and this one directly affects you, the generous giver. And it's so incredibly freeing to the soul, and it's this. Generosity combats greed. It's true. 
Generosity combats greed. So look one last time here at our text in Acts chapter 20, and this time look at verse 33. Smack dab in the center of Paul linking our salvation with generosity, he says this. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I coveted nobody's silver, gold, or apparel. Interesting. In the process of giving and working and being generous, Paul says a clear byproduct was a diminishing of greed and coveting in his life. So I was thinking about this this week. I thought, well, if generosity is excessively giving, what's greed? What's coveting? So I looked them up too. Greed is defined as inordinate desire. Inordinate, in other words, it's desiring too much. Now, coveting is defined, interesting, coveting is kind of like a cousin to greed, is defined as wanting possessions too much. Coveting is always focused on a tangible possession. And when you start to understand that, you start to get what Paul is saying here, that when you're in the process of being excessive with your time, talents, and treasures, then by its very nature, when it's flowing, you're probably not going to be having inordinate desire and wanting possessions too much. They both can't take up residence in your soul at the same time. They're opposed to each other. So, so when you're being generous, by its very nature, you're combating greed. That's what Paul was experiencing here. But when he gave himself, greed was less. And the only thing that we have to be really careful about here, now don't miss this, is the tendency that most of us have to deny that we really struggle with greed. As I mentioned earlier, I, I was influenced by Keller on, on, on my thinking here because he's really done a lot of study here. One of the things Keller points out, and I thought this was fascinating. Again, I studied the Ten Commandments for years, never saw this. Keller said that, that when it comes to the Ten Commandments, that it's interesting that on most of the Ten Commandments, when you're breaking them, you don't wonder if you're breaking them. So if you're in the midst of committing adultery, you're not sitting there thinking, I wonder if I'm committing adultery. But when you're in the midst of murdering somebody, you're not wondering, am I murdering somebody? When they're in the midst of stealing, you're not saying to yourself, I wonder if I'm stealing. Most of the Ten Commandments are fairly obvious and black and white, except for the tenth one. Do you guys remember the tenth one? Do not covet your neighbor's house or oxen, or manservant, or maidservant. Or to put it in modern-day terms, do not covet your neighbor's gated community, or BMW, or 401K. In other words, we're not to look at our neighbor and covet anything that he or she has. But isn't it interesting that most of us do that on a regular basis, and it just slips right by us? Can you own that today? I do. I walk my neighborhood, and I say, gosh, that's a really nice cactus. My dog would like that cactus. That's a really nice cactus. You know, I think, I wish I had a Serraro cactus in my front yard. Or I'll walk by, ooh, Joe got a new car. That's a really nice car. My church wouldn't like it if I bought that car, but that's a really nice car. I mean, I, I walk my neighborhood all the time, and, and, and I'm just like coveting, coveting, coveting. And it's not like I get home and go, God, forgive me for coveting. I get back home and then I watch a show and go, ooh, I'd like that too. You know, and I mean, I just, just like on and on and on. And before you know it, Jesus once said this. Jesus once said, avoid all kinds of greed. Isn't that an interesting thing? All, I don't know what he means by that, all kinds of greed. But I think what he means by that is that greed is so subtle and it comes in so many different forms that you can be doing it. And before you know it, you don't know you're doing it. And again, the reason we know this too is when was the last time somebody confessed greed or coveting to you? 
I mean, people confess all kinds of things to a pastor, but nobody in my, I'm, I'm telling you, 20 years, nobody's come to my office and said, you know what, just got to get off my chest. I've been greedy lately. I've just been coveting lately. I just got to tell you. Nobody ever does that. And so either one, we've mastered that. None of us have any greed or coveting in us, which obviously that's not true. Or it's just so insidious that we don't see it when it's there. Uh, Keller suggests this. I love this. He said, try applying the how easy test and you'll start to see your greed. Ask yourself, when it comes to all the different areas of life, how easy is it for you to buy certain things? How easy is it for you to want and ascertain or, or get certain things? And when you find out the answer to the how easy, those are the areas that if you look close, you probably struggle greatly with greed and coveting in. I, I tried that this week. I, this is great. I, I, I thought, you know, my, my wife's favorite store is Michael's. Have you guys ever been into a Michael's? Uh, if you're a man, don't go into Michael's. I can tell you that right now. Because I've gone into more Michael's. Kim and I will be traveling. You should go, oh, there's a Michael's. I'm like, there's a Cracker Barrel, too. Let's not go into you know, Michael's. Because you go into Michael's, and, and, and men, if you've never been into Michael's, they, it's almost painful because they sell like a thousand, a pack of a thousand popsicle sticks without the popsicles. I mean, it's like a craft store. You, you, know, you walk into Michael's, and there's artificial flowers and glue guns and sewing stuff. I mean, it's just a nightmare. And I've been to Ni Michael's so many times over the years. And I'm telling you, men, I can... I'm not tempted in any aisle in Michael's. None. I've walked every aisle, and there is nothing that tempts me in Michael's. I once sat there with a glue gun, and I thought, Home Depot can destroy this thing. It's like a little glue gun. It's nothing, a little glue stick. That's not going to hold anything. It doesn't even hold my wife's crafts. I mean, I just thought, this is crazy. And so the how easy factor for me and Michael's, like if I compare my, that's a no-brainer, like zero. You know, it's nothing. Would you put me in a Home Depot or a Best Buy? And now it's a different story. Amen, men? It's a different story. I, I'm not kidding. I, I don't even get through the door. I'm still on the parking lot of Best Buy, I mean, of a Home Depot. And I'm saying, I could use a bigger shed in my backyard. <laughs> and then I walk through the door. You know, they haven't sold like... Um, what do they call them? Not, Bill, what do you have in your house? Not the um, air conditioner, but a swamp cooler. Like they sell swamp coolers at Home Depot. And you know, most people don't have them anymore because an air conditioner is much better. But, you know, I'm, I'm, they're selling swamp coolers the other day in there. And I paused and I was looking at it. And I thought, you know what? This would actually fit in my garage. <laughs> and then I thought, but I don't have insulated walls in my garage. But I said, they sell insulation here. And I'm thinking about insulating my garage and buying a swamp cooler. And I thought, I, I don't need that. It's insidious. I, I mean, for me, the how easy factor at Home Depot, and don't even get me going on Best Buy, because they put, what, the cell phone stuff right at the front of the store, right? So, you know, you walk through, oh, I need a new cell phone. It, it's just insidious. That's easy for me. So I know, and now don't miss this, guys, awareness is half the battle. I know for me that, that Home Depot and Best Buy, as opposed to Michael's, it is a different story. And the question is, what is it for you? I think this is really helpful. What is it for you? This will help, with this, help you with the subtlety of greed. Is it clothes? Is it shoes? Is it books? Is it cars? Is it home furnishings? Is it technology? I, I tell you, eBay is a trap for a lot of us. eBay is all about collectibles and hobbies. And there are some of us that are on eBay all the time because eBay 
on a how easy scale is very easy for us. I'm not suggesting any of this is wrong. You guys know me better than that. But as we try to ascertain the subtlety of greed, which will rob us of generosity, the how easy factor is really helpful. Identify it for you. Because truly generosity combats greed. It's difficult to be excessively giving and inordinately desiring at precisely the same time. One rules out the other. So final thought. If awareness is half the battle, identifying personal greed and coveting, naming the enemy and recognizing it when it rears its ugly head, then what's the other half? And the other half is what we've been talking about this morning. The other half is fostering generosity to such a degree that it helps others. And how do you foster generosity? Go back to where we started. Dig deep within your salvation. But one thing I'm absolutely convinced about, for any of you here today that are followers of Christ that know, know you've been saved by him, is that I promise you, deep down within you is a generous heart. That gives me so much hope. I believe that about you. I believe that about me. And I know from my own heart, it is so easy to overlook that and to cover that up with all sort of junk. But the reality is you dig deep enough and your heart really as a saved person truly is generous. And the only way you're going to get in touch with that generosity again is to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who has saved you and given you that generous heart. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 2 and a part of 3 says this. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him. Jesus came to us fully God and fully man. It's a mystery called the hypostatic union of Christ. That's the theological phrase for it. It's the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ all rolled up into one. And as the perfect son of God, but also somebody who struggles with everything that we do struggle with, he has demonstrated for us what it means to live a life of generosity, giving freely of your time, talents, and treasures. And so as you and I struggle with this, man, let's just look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who can empower us as well as give us the impetus to dig deep and be generous. <laughs> thank you. Let's pray. And then we have one more thing to do as we worship. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for the fact that you have saved us and called us to a holy life, a set-apart life, that, Lord, though we so fall short, and we all own that, we claim the blood of Jesus as our forgiver and then look to him to get better. And so, Father, I pray that as we look to dig deep when it comes to being generous with our time and our talents and our treasures, all of who we are, that, God, you would give us glimpses of what that can be like and then help us to act upon them. And, God, as we do that, so touching to me is would you turn blessings into shalom for those around us, whether it be family members or those in our community, those through our church. God, may blessings turn into shalom. And may you work in our souls as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.